while there's some local interest in the 1940s when our church came into existence, it was in the there was a, a movement within denominations that really changed the fabric of the gospel, and we're going to be looking at that. Uh, that movement that changed the character of the gospel and affected a lot of denominations uh, coming into the 1900s, the rise of theological liberalism. Yeah, uh, John has uh, handouts for people if they'd like to follow along with that as well. Um, so, this morning I'm going to start with a definition of theological liberalism, and it is also on your handout there. Theological liberalism refers to a movement that began in Europe around 1800 due to the pervasive influence of Friedrich Schleiermacher. <laughs> is that a clear as mud? But there's details in that that we're going to unpack as we go forward, and you'll learn a little bit about uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher who sounds sinister uh, as well. So, uh, he was a very kind and gentle man, but his doctrine was uh, not helpful for Christianity for sure. Uh, but there are four aspects, uh, four broad characteristics of theological liberalism that will make more sense to you, and that is uh, characteristic of a denial of the supernatural character of Scripture. It was a tendency to read the Scriptures from a, a modern scientific view that puts a lot of doubt into things like I spoke about today, the virgin birth, for example. Um, there was the accommodation of deism, skepticism, and Darwinism. Deism is the belief that there is a, super, a higher power of sorts that created the world but then is not involved in the world. He, he sets the ball in motion and then steps back. And that was a, a very popular view at the beginning of our republic. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was an adherent to that view. Um, he was a deist and reading a lot of the uh, continental literature coming across the Atlantic. Skepticism is a, is a kind of a, an assumed stance against the supernatural, and of course, I think we know what Darwinism is in the late, uh, the mid-1800s that came into popularity as an explanation for the creation of the world. Um, they altered key Christian doctrines as well, uh, like the virgin birth, as I described, and also the, the effect of the cross and, and deny the resurrection and read it more metaphorically. They also elevated ethics over at the expense of, of doctrine. Um, there was a great controversy that occurred as this new way of teaching started to work its way through denominations, and it's sometimes called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and it, was pro it is the most consequential event in religious history in North America, and some of the effects of it are still being felt today. If you've ever asked yourself, why is it that the Episcopal Church has such a loose understanding of Scripture, it's a direct result of this, um, making the self the standard and authority for the interpretation of Scripture 
and prioritizing that. Even today, theological liberalism is found in critical race theory. It is a significant contributor to that way of thinking. Um, maybe you're a little bit less familiar with revoice theology, which is revoice, revoicing gender roles and also an, an accommodation of, of homosexuality in the church as well. Um, with that, let's ask, wh- where did this theological liberalism come from? And let's consider the rise of it. Um, Gary Dorian is a historian of, liter- of liberal theology, and he says this. He says, the idea of liberal theology is nearly three centuries old. In essence, it is the idea that Christian theology can be genuinely Christian without being based upon external authority. Let that set in for a minute. What were the issues that were being argued at the time of the Reformation? What were the, what were the key argument that Protestants had with the Catholic Church? Sola Scriptura, that the Scripture alone was the authority, not the Pope's voice. Now, this is incredibly different. He is saying, essentially, that reason or intuition or experience is the final authority and guide to matters of faith. In other words, the authority is the self. How does the self relate to these Scriptures? And it has profound implications for biblical interpretation. Um, and the Bible and how we interpret it, if we're using our own personal experiences and the norms of our particular culture and go to the Scriptures, we're going to come out with a feminist theology in which we've got to break away from the patriarchy and the elevation of the feminine is going to take precedence over whatever the Bible says. And uh, so there is, there is uh, implications that are very profound But what specifically led to the diminishment of the external authority of the Word of God? Theological liberalism arose in the continent of Europe during the Enlightenment. Um, The Enlightenment was a major movement with lots of variety due to uh, particular regions and emphases and time periods in Europe, but that's just a very generalized statement, but it began in the 1700s by placing an emphasis upon reason, individual autonomy, progress, and the innate goodness of man. Immanuel Kant was the leading philosopher of the Enlightenment, and he wrote in 1784, Enlightenment is man's release from self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his own understanding without direction from another. Man is self-incurred in his tutelage. In other words, he, he has to have people to guide him. He has to have authorities outside of himself to lead him. And he lacks the resolution and the courage to use his reason without direction from another. He says, hence, have courage to use your reason, and that is essentially the motto of the Enlightenment. Reason, number one, 
in turn, is rooted in the idea that we are autonomous and have ability in ourselves to uh, rule ourselves well, and we become a law unto ourselves. Um, how is that going? Not well. No, people need structure. They need a law. Absolutely. But Kant, uh, Kant excuse me, like others in the Enlightenment movement, believed in the inevitability of human progress, that if men are just liberated to use their own reason and guide themselves, they will bring society to a better place ultimately, and this can be done through education and general civilization. And fourthly, man, he believed, was, in, was capable of infinite moral improvement through education because of his innate goodness. So, a culture of the Enlightenment in the continent put a lot of pressure on Christians to accommodate their views. You can see that there's a denial of original sin. There is a denial of the Scripture as an authority. And there is uh, an unwillingness to, to live within the structures of historic church doctrine. And Christians who felt the pressure began to accommodate and and adopt some of those values and incorporate them into church settings. And Friedrich Schleiermacher was one of those and the chief proponent of adopting a liberalized theology. And he wrote an essay called On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And in this, these essays, he attempted to try to save um, Christianity's respectability in front of the world, and he, he, he said, true spirituality or piety is um, a feeling of absolute dependence upon God or a higher power. And as he talked about that, there is a self-referential that occurs in that statement. And for Schleiermacher, the individual experience of God, whether in Scripture or in, or in nature, was the, was the ultimate authority and guide for faith. It was individual experience that was most important. So, this is a contributing factor. I'm going to give you a, a, a second factor that's… I will not spend as much time with um, this aspect, but historical critical method began to be applied to the Scriptures. Uh, Ernst uh, Troschel… Um, wrote an essay called On Historical and Dogmatic Method in Theology, and he said that when you approach Scripture, you ought to have a radical criticism or significant doubt about its assertions, not simply take it as an authority, but test it. Any church dogma is supposed to be tested. Um, he talked about the necessity of correlation. In other words, uh, we live within a closed system, so everything has a cause and effect. You can't take an outside factor coming in, doing a miraculous event like a virgin birth. And they also, he talked about analogy or what we would call uniformitarianism. Uh, maybe if you've been involved in the apologetic movement within creationism, you might be familiar with this term. 
It's the idea that the things that we experience today have always been that way, and so we should expect things to be the way they are 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, the same as they are today. And so through Darwinism, for example, the sequence of mutations are such that if we look at our day today and we see a mutation in a fruit fly and it takes this much time to get a beneficial result, we can expect that that's the way it has been always. And so we factor in millions and billions of years. So uniformitarianism, he said, well, basically, you know, we don't see a virgin birth taking place today. We don't see multiplication of loaves. And so there's another rational explanation for why Jesus was able to feed such a large crowd. And so theories and suggestions were put forward for that. Um, it is a mindset, you know, that it's impossible to reconcile with the supernatural character of the Word of God. And um, uh, modern science seemed to be settled in their era, and so they felt very confident that this is something that we have to, we have to make Scripture accommodate because the science is settled. Think about how we've heard that over the last few years. Trust me, the science is settled. Well, the reality is that God is factored out of that arrangement. Um, and so, through this, there came the downplaying. Oh, there was, here's a response that uh, uh, Rudolf Boltman uh, had, uh, or excuse me, Herman Bovink had to this whole system of thinking. He was a Dutch theologian and a conservative Dutch theologian. He said, uh, Holy Scripture is being robbed of its divine authority by historical criticism, and even the warrant for and value of religion is being seriously disputed. Consequently, religious life today is dramatically less vigorous than before. And you can see essentially how that would be. And so, a lot of the church doctrine uh, has been, been changed and there was a reformalization of doctrine for its current modern age. Um, let's look at the effects of this way of thinking, the effects of theological liberalism. Um, first and foremost, there is an undermining of the Bible in which we elevate reason over revelation. Um, Robert Bultmann also German, um, said we need to demythologize, demythologize the Bible. We need to take the myth out of it to make it palatable. Um, he said in a book titled New Testament and Mythology, he said, we cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medicine and clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. I had a professor when I was at Bob Jones. Um, his name was Gunter Solter. He had come over to America after World War II. He had worked in the automotive industry in, in um, Michigan. He came and taught, and he did a philosophy of education class, and he, he, as a German, said, if you could pick up Germany and look at the underside you would say, made in, it would say made in hell. <laughs> that was a German speaking. 
he, he understood profoundly that the effects of this kind of thinking warped several generations that created the impetus for what we saw in World War II and removing the authority of, of Scripture over top of a people. Um, and so, there is a downplaying of the major doctrines. Uh, the virgin birth, the divinity of Jesus Christ was questioned, bodily resurrection of Christ, sinlessness of Christ, the historical reality of Adam and Eve were all questioned. There was also an emphasis upon uh, ethics and not doctrine. Uh, particular to this emphasis was Harry Emerson Fosdick, was a major popularizer of, of theological liberalism. He was an ordained Presbyterian. He pastored Riverside Baptist Church in Manhattan. He also, at one time, Par Park Avenue Church in New York City. He delivered a sermon in 1922 that was very famous. It's called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It was published in 3,000 journals and magazines and disseminated throughout America. Fosdick also promoted liberalism at Union Theological Seminary from 1908 to 1946. Uh, in the sermon this morning, I quoted Charles Augustus Briggs, who denied the virgin birth. He taught at the same seminary that, that Fosdick was influential and a part of as well. And so, what they did was they would elevate the social and intellectual ethics and can, this all contributed toward the rise of what's called the social gospel, the social gospel. Um, the social gospel taught that regeneration was not something that was merely for the heart, but it was the renovation of the minds, but also of society and the social wrongs that have been perpetrated through the years. All injustice and poverty could finally be undone because of what Christ did as a moral example. Uh, Walter Rauschenbusch uh, taught at Rochester Theological Seminary. He was a Baptist, and he had a book called Christianity and the Social Crisis. And he wrote, the essential purpose of Christianity was to transform human society into the kingdom of God by regenerating all human relations and reconstructing them in accordance with the will of God and the Christian church has never undertaken to carry out this fundamental purpose of its existence. And so their effort was to try to change the systemic issues on the institutional level within America. And so the effect of this is pretty significant. If you think even politically, through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, as the denominational structures in America had a lot of still influence, there was an, an, an intense pressure put upon Congress to create programs to change and, and reconstitute America to be a just society for all people. Um, and in the process, there was a downplaying of the vertical element of the gospel, which is that people need to be changed from the inside out first. Um, now, I think there is something that we can learn. There is a real aspect in which the Great Commission and the greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourself. Those are things that are widely applicable, but not at the expense of the true gospel. We need to love God 
from the heart, from a regenerated heart, so that we can love our fellow men as we ought to. And um, they also redefined missions. They redefined um, missions. Did I skip over that in my slides? My slides are not coming out the way I want them to be. Okay, there we go. I want you to see these beautiful men. Like that guy's hair. That's Fosdick. This is uh, Walter Rauschenbusch. He's got a good beard. I like that beard. He's got a little bit strange eye and countenance. Makes me a little bit nervous. But this is uh, William Owen Carver. Um, he, taught, he taught at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, um, and he, he thought that it was very important to uh, change how Christians uh, do missions. Um, he thought basically, he, was, he thought that the traditional motive for mission is, is no longer val- valid at all. He, he believed that God would not judge sinners in hell, and that instead of paying for the penalty of sin, the cross is about our moral and social development. Um, here's a quote from Carver. Who would have guessed before Christ revealed it that the cross is to be the greatest principle in the rescue and development of human personality and of the race? The cross has come to be recognized as the mightiest principle in the evolution of character. Carver's does... Carver does talk about the, the uniqueness of Jesus and the thrust of his work about Jesus. He does talk about the social dynamics of what Christ did in his ministry, but really downplayed the aspects of sin and, and bringing salvation for all man, for mankind. Um, here's a response to um, all of these changes that occurred. Uh, H. Richard Nyber famously said this, that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And that pretty much sums up the attempt to accommodate a world that was against us from the beginning. So, the response to theological liberalism, um, during this time period, people were being raised up who began to be sensitive to these changes that were taking place. Uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Warfield. Whoop. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield um, was uh, a professor at Princeton Seminary. Um, he was, at that time, it was a, a still a reformed uh, bastion of orthodoxy, Protestant orthodoxy, and he detailed. He wrote many defenses of the doctrine of Scripture during this time period, but even Warfield was under pressure from the administration at his school to accommodate liberals that were being raised up through the classrooms and allow them to serve as professors, as co-equals with him. Finally, it came to a, a head, and he decided that he needed to leave Princeton and establish a new seminary that would be faithful to the old historic doctrines of the church 
And he was uh, one of the early founders of Westminster Theological Seminary uh, down in uh, Glenside, uh, near, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, War, Warfield emphasized that the Bible itself claims to be true from God and that Jesus and the apostles understood the Bible to be true from God. He understood clearly you can't divorce the Scriptures from the ministry of Jesus. You, 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 can't, you can't just say that there's an ethic that we adhere to. We have to accept the teachings of Jesus as having significant weight as well, and also the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Um, J. Gresham Machen also at that time. Um, he grew up in a privileged family in Baltimore at the end of the 19th century. He studied at John Hopkins University. He had graduate degrees at Princeton, and during the First World War, he served as a chaplain with the YMCA, and um, he became a professor of New Testament in, at Princeton. And in 1923, Machen published a monumental book on a series of essays he had written called Christianity and Liberalism. And he argued that historic Christianity was so radically different than what is, was being presented by theological liberals. He said, modern liberalism not only is different religion from Christianity, but belongs to a totally different class of religions. And the reason for this is that the authority was gone. Scripture, scripture was no longer being seen as the authority. Self was being seen as the authority. And he said, it is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful man. Um, Machen also joined with the teaching uh, and taught at Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929, and he went on to also found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. Uh, one last individual here is um, Bob Jones Sr. and Bob Jones uh, College, and this was a response to theological liberalism. Uh, Bob Jones was born in Alabama. He grew up in Dothan. He was the 11th of 12 children born to William and Georgia Creel. Jones. At 13, he began to preach. And over the years, he preached to thousands of people up and down throughout East and West. By the 1920s, Bob Jones was the best-known evangelist in the U.S. except for Billy Sunday. In Zanesville, Ohio, a town of 22,000, at one of his meetings, there were 3,300 converts. And 2,200 joined churches on that Easter Sunday. By the time he was 40, Jones had preached to more than 15 million people. Later, it's recalled that in 1924, his friend William, William Jennings Bryan had leaned over to him at a Bible conference service in Winona Lake and said this, if schools and colleges do not quit teaching evolution as a fact, we're going to become a nation of atheists. 
And it was after the fall of 1925, shortly after the Scopes Monkey Trial, Jones and his wife were driving in South Florida talking about the need for an Orthodox Christian college as an alternative to what was being offered through denominational schools and also secular-funded schools. And um, after stopping for some sandwiches, it said, Jones announced just as a clap of thunder out of a clear sky that he was going to found such a school. And his wife's first response was, Robert, you're crazy. And Jones immediately turned the car north and began consulting with friends in Alabama near Florida about a location. And the college opened in 1927 in, uh, near Lynn Haven, Florida. Now, I'm kind of closing with this, obviously, because I have some connections to it. Um, but as I was preparing this lesson, I realized that the university creed that we recited every chapel service there was a direct response to theological liberalism. Every line of the creed uh, addressed one of the things that was being challenged by liberalism. Um, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, uh, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, His identification as the Son of God, His vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of His blood on the cross, the resurrection of His body from the, from the tomb, His power to save men from sin, the new birth through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. Every single line is like an, an address against everything that these denominational schools were putting out and saying, we don't need to believe these things anymore. And so, as um, I hope kind of walking through this, you can kind of get kind of a sense of where liberal Christianity has come from. It comes out of the question of, to what do I appeal to as an authority? Do I lean on the Word of God, or do I sit in judgment over the Word of God? Um, doctrine, especially the doctrine of Scripture, is such an essential element of biblical Christianity, and we have such an important responsibility to, to guard the doctrine that's been given to us. And sadly, you know, it's not enough just to affirm like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or, you know, we have to make very bold statements about what the Bible says even now today about gender. These are things that are, are being preached because there is an assumption that the self can make judgment about these issues. And so, we have to guard and defend even against the cultural headwinds that are resistant to the truth of God. The Word of God is fixed above the heavens and will never change. Psalm 119, verse 89. That's what our church came out of the resistance movement towards a lot of these doctrines, and that's part of our heritage and founding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for time this morning to consider, in some ways, a, a sad trajectory away from the truth but it's also a revelation at the same time. Those, those stars that would shine 
in the sky, Lord, I pray that we would be those because we've anchored ourselves in you and your word, and that we would um, stand fast for the truth, and Lord, that we would be able to communicate love and compassion to the world because we do have truth that they desperately need. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.